and welcome to Alien Minute, the daily podcast where we are analyzing aliens in short controlled bursts. I'm John Engel. And I'm Mitch Bryan, and today we're looking at Minute 81, which begins with Ripley saying, I mean that, and ends with Ripley saying, let's go through it again. And here we are. We're going through it again. We're back. Me and Mitch, back in the old recording studio together. And I'm sure many of you are glad to hear that. It's been a while. It's been weeks and weeks and weeks since Mitch's voice has been on this podcast. It's been a long, long time. Uh, I'm excited that that I'm going to be here for the next two weeks. Yeah. We have a guest next week, which is going to be exciting. Um, And I'm kind of glad that I got these minutes. I mean, they're not... They're not uh, they're not explosive and actiony. They're very different, and they're kind of the the both the emotional and the thematic heart of the movie. So I'm I'm really kind of glad to be talking about these minutes. Yeah, the the explosive action um, is more in one version of it. So we'll talk a little bit about that when we discuss director's cut changes. Yeah, the version that we're covering, the theatrical cut, is actually a very dramatic. It's a bit of a uh, as I was going through doing the minute descriptions, I realized they all began with says, and then she says, and then I was like, oh, there's no, I'm not putting any action descriptions in here at all. So uh, uh, depending on which version you're watching, these minutes are actually quite different, but we'll discuss both angles. But you that. know, in some ways, given all of James Cameron's other movies, you know, his dialogue's never been the greatest thing. Dialogue's pretty good in these scenes. Yeah. It moves the plot ahead. It gives us room for character development, which is one of the things that makes the movie great, I think. One of the things that justifies its length is the time that he takes for us to get to know the characters. And we see some pretty significant uh, both bonding moments and moments of character disruption over these next few minutes. So there's a lot to talk about, actually. Yeah, and I guess we'll start with we're in the middle of a bonding moment here with uh, Ripley and Newt. We've already discussed last week a lot about this uh, putting her, tucking her in scene, so to speak. And one thing I wanted to say that uh, I'm impressed with, you know, you're, you're putting into the context of James Cameron, the rest of James Cameron's career and how often, you know, his dialogue isn't so great, like you said. Um, I think it's impressive how much he committed to this uh, scene. I, I could easily think that maybe in this, you know, phase of his career, the later phase of his career, he might have gotten through it a little quicker. And said, hey, guess what? There's a connection between these two, but let's get on to some other things. And this scene plays out for quite a while and is a full commitment to the relationship between these two. He seemed to fully understand how important the bond between the two of them was going to be for the for the movie to work. And he put a lot of trust in Carrie Hinn to pull off her side of this dialogue scene. Um, these are things that, you know, I think he was taking a risk here a little bit. And I could have seen this. It did get cut down a little bit from its original intentions. I think we talked about that a little bit last week with some of the more, um, some of the more morbid discussion that she has about her mother being dead and so on. But um, that's not what this scene's about anyway. To me, to me, it's about the bond between Ripley and Newt, and the commitment to it's pretty. It's pretty solid. It almost feels like the level that Spielberg would go, you know, to have this child uh, and paternal figure connection occur. Where I just think so many other, especially action movie directors, would gloss over this a little bit. Just say, it'd be an arbitrary scene to them. Well, we got to make sure that there's a bond here. But really, we're just trying to keep things moving. Uh, it's it's well it's well executed in that it takes its time, but it doesn't drag in any way. And my guess would be that uh, given how we're going to see some other moments with characters that are going to be done in single takes, where he's really letting the actors do their thing, 
Uh, in this case, he's covering it with sort of a traditional shot reverse shot, which probably gave him a little bit of room with uh, with Carrie Hen's performance, you know, in case she wasn't, you know, I don't know. Sure. You, you got a lot. You got you have choices this way, and so taking that time to cover both of them the way that he does, it, and and the time taken to make those lighting changes, the going from you know, lighting setup one that doesn't have the heat lamp, lighting setup two that has the heat lamp but the other light on, lighting setup three where the heat lamp is becomes the primary source of light. I mean, that's that that's a commitment as well. You yeah. Know? He he was he was using his time. He was spending the time that he was allotted and decided that this was worth making a moment out of it and and really concentrating on what is the emotional heart of the film. I also just wanted to say, even though this happened in the previous minute, that the passage of the object. The passage of the the wristwatch that uh, track wrist track, tracker that was given first, um, you know, from from Hicks to Ripley, and then Ripley passes that on to Newt, and and this the power of that object and the symbolic emotions attached to it. Mm-hmm. I mean, he gave that to Ripley because he he cares about her. Yeah. You know, yeah. she gives it to Newt because she cares about her. So, you know, it's it's not rocket science here. But it works. It's very, very effective. Yeah, I agree. And you know, to go back to the lighting, um, we, we talked a little bit about that last week. But um, like I was saying, you know, this could have been a pretty, you know, kind of a trite scene. Or it, it, in the way it's cut, like you mentioned, the shot reverse shot rhythmically could drag a little bit. Like if the scene didn't work so well, the performances didn't work so well. But also, I think he's kind of covering his tracks a little bit, or, or covering for the possibility that it could drag a little bit. By adding this dynamism with the lighting, I think you get this three-act lighting. So we're changing visually the scene while it's really kind of the... It's kind of just a, a, a static scene in a lot of ways. You know, it's cutting, but we're just getting back and forth and back and forth. It's nice to get a little bit of a visual change thrown in there just to make it dynamic. And, um, you know... You know what, you, what you mentioned about Spielberg, how you said this is sort of a, a Spielberg kind of moment. Mm-hmm. It made me think about the embrace that they that they share. Yeah. And I can't remember who the interview was with somebody did an interview years ago where they said that they were doing an actor and they were doing this scene for Spielberg and there was an embrace and uh, they closed their eyes when they hugged and Spielberg said what are you doing open your eyes if I can't see your eyes I can't see the emotion in the embrace and so I always watch in movies now I've ruined this for everybody I always watch in movies when they do embraces whether their eyes are open or their eyes are closed and I think Spielberg's right it's always better when their eyes are open when they embrace. And in this case, we've got some closed eyes on the embrace. Yeah, that seems more real, though, right? The closed eyes. I yeah, mean, do you what does real have to do with anything? I, I when get it comes that. To movies. Well, I never think about it because when I'm watching, if I see, you know, if it looks natural to me, it works. I don't, yeah. I, I've never really noticed one way or the other. Now you will. I've remembered. No, I will. You. Thanks. And for everybody else out there, thank you so much. Thanks you know, for joining us. Since I have you here on the line, Mitch. Um, I want to go back a, f- a bunch of minutes because we're mentioning Spielberg and we're mentioning embraces. And there's something I brought up way back when we first, I guess it would have been the first scene between Ripley and Newt where they're first. Where she's cleaning her yeah, face. Yeah, where she's cleaning her yeah. face. And I was talking about, there was an interview I saw with Spielberg where he talked about framing. And in that particular scene, you have this little like corner of the frame when you cut to Newt, when you cross cut to Newt where you see Ripley in the corner of the frame just ever so slightly. And then when Newt finally opens up to her, you get like a full over the shoulder shot. And I was talking about this interview I saw with Spielberg where he talked about um, hugging the subject within the frame. 
And he likened himself. He said, I'm a little bit more like a Truffaut, like as far as my influences with the French New Wave and so on go, where Truffaut would do this, where he would frame people with objects in the foreground in this sort of empathetic embrace of sorts. And I, pulling this all out of my ass, I really don't remember where I saw this or what. Do you ever remember hearing this term? No, uh, no, but I'm interested. So so what, what he, he said that Truffaut was Truffaut placing a person in, in terms yeah. of this object in the foreground? It could be a person. It could be a wall. Uh-huh. Um, it's something, you know, I would say for a different reason. You see Woody Allen d- does that stuff a lot where he'll have um, kind of a static setup. Right. And characters will go in and in out and of out, a room. Yeah. Or sometimes in, d- during a certain part of the dialogue, they'll be like on screen right while the wall is sort of in the foreground screen left. And I would just remember Spielberg describing this idea as being kind of like showing sympathy and showing that you care about the degree to which subject and not isolating them in a field. So, so the degree to which in a shot reverse shot, you have a, um, a dirty single versus a clean single, a clean single. There's nobody else in it. A dirty single has a, a, a portion of the other person in the shot. It could be a lot or it could be a little. Yeah. And are you suggesting that maybe by increasing the amount of the other person in the frame, you create uh, uh, this embrace that he's yes. calling? That's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah. I'll and, buy that for a dollar. Yeah. yeah I, I only bring it up. I mean, it has nothing to do with what, well, maybe a little bit to do because this is a mirrored kind of a, a repeat of the scene in a way. It's a further, we're further along in the journey of their relationship, but... I did want to, it was something I actually meant to ask you a long time ago if you'd ever heard of it because I started talking about it on air and well, it <laughs> realized I wasn't sure if that was a real thing. In this scene, by the time we get to the end, it's two clean singles. Yeah. Very close, close on Newt and close on Ripley. Yeah. And you wonder, so in that context, let, let's say what I said about the previous scene is correct, that that was the intention that Cameron had. Mm-hmm. What would be the intention now? What, what If that's what he was doing then, what would the clean singles be saying that... They're not about not to, to sep- say there aren't some dirty singles in this sequence. I mean, right. There are when they embrace. And yeah. I, I just, you know, I probably am going to default to the cynical point of view, which is that by covering Newt in a clean single, you have more options in editing to make sure that you can build the performance you need to build. Sure. That'd be my guess. Well, I mean, what do I know? I could also, I, I could go as far as to give him the benefit of the doubt and say that he intended to show us now that there's going to be, well, this doesn't make sense actually, because... I was going to say they're going to be separated for a while now. So maybe this was a part where they're saying, okay, now you two are going to be on your own for a little while. Maybe. But then again, when she comes back in and the shit doesn't really hit the fan until they're literally hugging underneath right. a bed. So maybe right. that theory's out. You're probably right. You're so, uh, Once again, cynicism wins the day uh, when talking <laughs> about James Cameron. When it comes to movie making, yeah. period. Well, um, I was going to also just mention as we do we move into the next do we move into the next do you have anything else to say about the the tracker or the camera or anything the only thing well we talked about that already that she promised uh, this will be a theme over the next two weeks she promised newt that she'd be in the next room see there's a camera i'll be watching the whole time which is a bald-faced lie but she we'll never get, watches her not she? at all you know right. she, and she's gone for uh, what will be two almost two weeks of yeah actually a whole two weeks of uh of of our show so um, just throwing that out there. But I also wanted to just go to this line talking about how strong the dialogue, I think, is, uh, is in this scene. Um, the line, go to sleep and don't dream, is kind of a chilling line. Yeah, I think that's good, actually pretty it's good. It's a horror movie line, isn't it? It's, well, it's, it could have been a tagline for a Nightmare on Elm Street sequel, I guess. But yeah. um, to me, in this context, it's not comforting. Really. Yeah. It's real. It's like yeah. Ripley as pragmatic parent. Like, 
I'm not, it's like she's promising that that she'll be there for her, but she's not promising everything will be okay exactly. So I think it actually makes the, it's a nice button on the scene for yeah. sure. Yeah, uh, and, uh, and a decidedly low-tech camera uh, watching yeah. them. <laughs> yeah, that's the that's the bank, one of the bank cameras the from bank. Dog Day Afternoon. Yeah, no yeah. kidding. It's so funny. <laughs> like, you know, the future. It's like even the line where he says smoking or non-smoking or whatever. Yeah. You know, How many hundreds of years in the future are we since they outlawed smoking on planes. Well, you might have missed it. You've been gone for a long time, but you might have missed that we established that there are, there are nicotine-free cigarettes. Oh, um, right, right. According okay. to uh, Alan Dean Foster's well, that's novelization. That's, so. that's good because Ripley lights one up in the next scene. Yeah, she's, she's in the med lab. She's having a smoke in the medical lab, yeah. <laughs> <It's> doctor, like... <laughs> yeah, hello, doctor. Would you like a cigarette? It's like in the 50s. Exactly. Yeah. Well, let's move on into that then. So here she is. She's standing over Gorman. We get a little, uh, like, tilt-up from, from Gorman, who's still unconscious from his little head knock. Thank God. Yeah, so we're not having to deal with him. And, but we, we're getting a kind of a – what we're getting with that tilt-up is we're actually getting Ripley, who took over you know, so dramatically uh, for, kind of command from Gorman. The yeah. last time Gorman was in command was right before he got knocked out. Yeah. And she had taken over command already. That was what he was reacting to that got him knocked out in the first place. So here we're getting a little bit of a dominant, like she's dominant in the frame, Definitely. right? Standing yeah. over him, yeah. very coolly smoking a cigarette. She's calm and ra- relaxed in this. While it's a stressful situation, she seems to be together right now, ready to talk this out, get this information. And she um, and, and she says, um, that, you know, we get some like arbitrary scientific exposition from Bishop, which really doesn't tell us anything. It's all stuff we already know. So it's really just science speak, right? Right. And it gives her the he's opportunity. Collate, he's still collating. He's collating. And, and it gives Ripley this opportunity to where a lesser film would have very easily speak English, Doc. I right. mean, that's what we get. Right. It's a variation on the line. It's much better than that. I just hate that line movie so much where um, they have to, you know, we have to get the science talk and then we have to get somebody to say, ah, why don't you make that easier for me, Doc? Yeah, you know. Yeah. But I like uh, the way she approaches it is very Ripley-esque. She gets what she's what he's saying. It's not like she's going to say, I don't know what you're talking about. She's telling him it's not what we're trying to you're get at helping. here. Yeah, this is not helping. <laughs> this is not what we're trying to figure out. Right. Of course, that's the uh, pretty much where we're going to end the minute. So tomorrow I'll talk more about how um, kind of twisting a cliche, what would usually be a cliche line, throws us right into a very cliche moment. But we'll talk, we'll talk about that tomorrow. What do you got to say about this? It's so funny. This moment, this this episode has gone so quickly, and the scene has gone so quickly. You know, I'm not, I don't have much more to say except that this is the beginning of a strategy that's going to take us through the next week, really, of Cameron committing to essentially long takes, mm-hmm. single takes with minimal pickups and coverage to just let his actors work within the space and breathe. And and you know, let's face it, it's, it's a faster way to get pages out of the way you know and when you're making a movie you have to make choices you can't shoot everything with the same amount of coverage and so he's really going to trust his actors to make this happen and it turns into very howard hawks christian nyby the thing kind of kind of dynamic which i which i quite like yeah and i think you know yeah this episode's probably going to end up being a little bit short i think we're in a transitional phase we're right at the end of one scene and right at the beginning of the other so the meat of either scene was you know either behind us or ahead of us so the fallacy of the minute by minute structure yes this 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 is one of those episodes that 
maybe proves the argument that minute by minute isn't necessarily the best way to cover a movie. But you know what? <laughs> then t- tomorrow we'll be writing the meat of stuff, and I bet we'll have a lot more to talk about tomorrow. So It's great to be back. Yeah, thanks for coming back. All right. Well, that's going to do it for us today. We'll um, tell you we can be found at AlienMinute.com, on Instagram at AlienMinutePodcast, on Twitter at AlienMinutePod. And we will, uh, like we always do on Mondays, thank the makers, Alex Robinson and Pete the Retailer, for coming up with this on Star Wars Minute. If you've not listened to Star Wars Minute, head over there and listen to them. They're going to be starting Revenge of the Sith very soon, so get excited about that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, that's going to do it for Minute number 81. Uh, We'll see you tomorrow for Minute 82.